Hey, it's Steve and welcome to Share, a podcast that sets out to do just that. From stories and reflections to ideas and concepts, each episode will dive into a wide range of topics and discussions that come from a journey through life. The simple fact I've discovered is when we share, we empower, not just ourselves, but each other. Are you planning your next holiday? Let the team at Mind & Body Travel inspire you. With a focus on wellness and well-being, the team at Mind & Body Travel can assist you whether you're looking to attend a retreat, test yourself on an adventure, tick off that bucket list trip, or just create a travel itinerary that includes all that you want in a holiday while taking into account all that your mind and body needs. Revolutionising the way people look at holidays and travel, they believe that travel should deliver nourishment for your soul, clarity for your mind, and renewed focus upon your return. So you ready to take off? Then it's time to check in with the team at Mind and Body Travel. Just visit www.mindandbodytravel.com. And I stood there at 4 a.m. in complete winter darkness in a place where most people do, do not want to be in just nothing more than a pair of Speedos, goggles and a swim cap, looking out and taking that next step into the English Channel, into the freezing water, and just thinking how excited I was. And I wasn't nervous. I was excited because not one person had ever taken that next step. In this week's episode, I had the pleasure in chatting with a multifaceted entrepreneur and an inspirational figure in the world of small business and artisan production. His journey is nothing short of remarkable, from his academic achievements in engineering and business to his daring aquatic adventures. As the brain behind Cheese Therapy, which was Australia's largest online artisan cheese retailer, and more recently the brand Max and Tom with his two sons, he has transformed his passion through life into thriving businesses. Not just content with business success, he has also pushed the boundaries of physical and mental endurance, swimming the English Channel and also being the first to attempt it in winter. He's also been one of the few to swim an ice mile. With his unique blend of entrepreneurial spirit, adventure-seeking heart and dedication to empowering small businesses, this week's guest Sam Penny is here to share his journey, his insights and inspiring stories through the triumphs and challenges that life has presented. Sam, welcome to Share. Steve, I'm excited to be here. How's the uh, sunny coast this afternoon? Well, I've just had to turn the aircon on. It's a bit, uh, you know, humid and tropical here. But hey, who's to complain? There's a beach less than a kilometre away. <laughs> Beautiful, Sam. I saw you and connected with you once you uh, you were a TEDx speaker at the end of 2022. I loved your story. I loved the energy that you brought to the stage and, and some of the concepts. So when I launched the podcast, your name was definitely on the list. Yeah, fantastic. Thanks, Steve. So Sam, give me a bit of a snapshot, uh, probably a little bit more than a snapshot, but tell me where it all began for Sam Penny. Oh, man. Jeez. This is going to be This is a journey. <laughs> <laughs> Born in Victoria, uh, we're an army family, so we moved around. I only lived in Victoria for a month, so hopefully that doesn't mean I'm Victorian. Lived in, you know, like a lot of people who are, who grew up in the military, lived in a lot of places, Townsville, Sydney, Canberra, and we eventually settled on the Sunshine Coast, a place called Wombai. Anyone who knows where the big pineapple is, that's Wombai on an avocado and mango farm and it was funny uh there are a lot of military uh retired military officers around us there was submarine commanders and flight commanders and all these high level military people all of a sudden running little hobby farms avocados mangoes macadamia and it was a great place to grow up i think we moved there when i was about 11 so we had avocados, mangoes, just a great place. And growing up here on the Sunshine Coast back in, what was that, the 80s, it was a very sleepy kind of place. Back in the day, there were only about two private schools. I went to the little Catholic school. And whilst I was there, all I ever wanted to be was a doctor. I wanted to do emergency medicine. I worked my ass off at school, but I just didn't get the marks to, to be a doctor, but I had a scholarship to study civil engineering at Defence Force Academy in Canberra with the Army. Went down there, three years of an absolutely life-changing time. Uh, it was life-shaping in terms of 
the discipline that you got, a lot of the ill-discipline perhaps on my part as well. When you're 18, thrown into an environment that like that with a few hundred peers, had a lot of fun, probably too much fun, which is why I only did three years. And the military and I came to the mutual agreement that perhaps not the best place for me and for either of us really. But from, from those three years, many of my lifelong friends come from that period because we've all have that shared experience of going bush for weeks and being in an environment that was just so full on, particularly studying civil engineering, where we would have, say, 30, 35 contact hours during the week, plus all of our study on top of that, plus all of our military requirements. So you know, for most engineers, we didn't get to sleep until about one or two o'clock in the morning up at about five o'clock. So it was full on six, seven days a week. Left Canberra, finished off my engineering up in Brisbane at QT, and from there went out and worked for Leighton Contractors, one of the largest civil contractors in the country, and then a mid-tier firm doing a lot of commercial developments. Whilst I was with those guys, I actually became their IT manager and because one of my passions, I don't know why it's a passion, I, at the time, I just used to love making databases and seeing data flow and the logic that went with everything and, you know, so the if-then-else kind of statements that went with everything and creating databases for a lot of projects that we're on and being able to manage a lot of the information that, that had to be dealt with, basically. And that was, that was fantastic. Having been able to all of a sudden go from civil engineering, where I'd studied years and years and years for six years, it took me to do my engineering degree. For everybody who knows how long it takes to get a degree, it's normally four years for that one. But after a year and a half as a civil engineer, here I am already with a career change as IT manager and and writing, writing databases. I recognized that civil engineering wasn't my calling and so I then went and studied an MBA at QUT at the Brisbane Graduate School of Business. At the same time, I started working for Oz Industry, which is the federal government doing research and development grants, which was fantastic because being able to go deep into businesses and ask the behind-the-scenes questions about their R&D and helping each of these businesses, often small, medium-sized businesses, working with them on their projects to try and get federal government money. It was such a privilege to be able to do that, to go behind the scenes and see real cutting-edge R&D in action. At the time, my parents had a, a small medical device company and they picked up a, a client called Tony Robbins, you know, sort of the 10-foot-tall American motivational guy, big hands, massive barrel chest. And they asked me if I could join them in the business because they wanted someone to, to deal with Tony and to handle Tony. And that was unbelievable, to be able to sit down with Tony and his wife, Sage, and talk business. And being in a room with a guy with the stature that he has and the entire time, he's just silent and all he did was take notes while Sage did all the talking. From there, dealing with Tony and then I created a product called the Circulation Booster. And this to me was perhaps one of my, I'd probably say a breakout moment for me because the Circulation Booster, this medical device where you put your feet on it, it kind of zaps your feet and improves circulation in your legs. And... In three years, I got that from zero to 1,500 pharmacies across Australia, so a third of the pharmacies, with a product that had never been in pharmacies before, a technology that had never been in pharmacies before, and a business that had absolutely zero knowledge of how pharmacy industry worked. Even though we had those three things against us, and they're pretty big things, I just worked out a plan, stayed so focused, and made this thing happen. And to this day, that product now is around the world and I'm really proud of what I achieved with that product and the fan mail that I used to get every single week from little old ladies, handwritten notes telling me how my product had changed their lives. And even though, yeah, you know, sort of financially that product was amazing, 
emotionally that product was for me just invincible. The feeling that you get when you recognize that you can change someone's life, it was cool. <laughs> that was just so cool. Gee, then following on from that, sold that company, sat around for about six months pretty bored and just decided I'm going to start a chain of hair salons. Easily, Steve, the most stupid thing I've ever done in my life. I had about seven hair salons trying to manage, I don't know, 50 hairdressers. It was not an easy task, not an easy task. And that's probably all we need to say about that period of my life. It was just, yeah, it was, it was brutal. And just before I uh, sold all those, I was at this charity auction down in Brisbane and it was a racing charity luncheon. And you could imagine, you know, not that I'm into horse racing or anything like that, but you can imagine auctions at a horse racing identity kind of lunch are going to be out of nearly everybody's price range except for the big egos in the room. And there were all these, you know, for example, they had a VC winner's slouch hat as one of the prizes. It's going, yep, that really set the caliber of what level these auctions are going to be at. But there was this one prize, which was a raffle, which was for a week in Vanuatu, a house, car, the works. And I just thought, you know what? That's mine because they didn't come around to the tables to sell raffle tickets. I had to actually go searching for them outside, found this little table where they're selling these raffle tickets. I bought six of them for about 200 bucks or something like that. And I reckon I was probably the only person who bought tickets in this raffle. Lo and behold, here I am winning this great trip to Vanuatu. And this was 2015 when I won this trip. And 2015, what's that? Nine years ago. This is really, I, I feel, quite a turning point, a career turning point, this trip. Because whilst we were there in Vanuatu with a couple of friends in a developing country, the supermarket there was French or Bon Marché. It had the most amazing cheese cabinet. Must have been about five meters long full of cheese that I've never seen, smelled or tasted before. And apart from, gee, I don't know, 50 different varieties of champagne, which I think we tasted every single one, the cheese was just unreal. And you know, when we came back to Australia, we're sitting around just going, I want to have the same cheese experience as what we had in Vanuatu. And so we tried to go out and find cheese, just great quality artisan handmade cheese. And then I realized that the supermarkets, you know, with Coles and Woolies have really killed off the deli scene here in Australia. And all the cheese is generally foreign owned. It's pretty bland. It's got long shelf life and it's just rubbery crap. And so I just thought, bugger me, I'm going to start bringing in cheese and if I can bring in cheese and share it with people, I'm sure I can make a little cheese club because I want it. I'm sure, I'm sure someone else would want to be part of it as well. And so, yeah, so that was the start of cheese therapy. And cheese therapy went on to become Australia's largest cheese, online cheese retailer. With that, I shipped about 120,000 orders of cheese around Australia. Cheese is a bloody hard thing to ship. And in Australia, it's even more difficult. It's ridiculous. But made it work through a lot of innovation in some insulation packaging that I created and you know, represented about 20 Australian small makers, changed an industry, particularly through COVID, where we we're able to put a lot of these small makers on a pedestal and being able to showcase to Australia actually what great cheese is. It was just, it was unbelievable. Just such a great business that I'm incredibly proud of. Following on from cheese therapy, which I closed in 2023, the middle of 23, because basically e-commerce took a massive hit. Anybody in e-commerce, it was a bloodbath. But I've then started my own cheese range called Max and Tom. So Max and Tom are actually my boys. And there's a few things that really drive me with Max and Tom. Firstly, is that I get to do something with my kids. So Max is 15, Tom is 11. I get to teach them entrepreneurship. And as a dad, 
you know, particularly in this day and age where kids are quite don't have a bearing on what they want to do with their life. Entrepreneurship to me is the king because you can do anything, as I've demonstrated many times over. And you're, you're the jack of all trades, you know, whether it's customer service, marketing, finance, logistics, um, sales, you name it. As an entrepreneur, you have to be able to do it all. So, May 23, we started, or well, we launched Max and Tom. Now the boys are actually just about to launch their own clothing lines. So they've, they've realized that they can make designs up, get stuff printed and sell it because now they, you know, they know how to do sales. They, I'm helping them with their website and their e-commerce and they've just gone, oh, actually, I don't need to go and work at Macca's. I can actually sell a T-shirt when I'm asleep. So that's, that for me is a, you know, a proud dad moment. Also with Max and Tom, I get to support regional communities and that's through the milk that we, that we use from small local dairy farmers because I've recognized in Australia and also around the world that regional communities, and I think we all agree, regional communities really suffer. And if we look at the dairy industry as an example here in Australia, 1980, we had 22,000 dairy farms. We've got less than 6,000 today. That's unbelievable. And, you know, that's 16,000 families who have moved away from their regional communities and 16,000 businesses that have likely had to close because they've had to move off their land. And imagine the hardship of all those families that have had to move away and leave their communities and leave the farms that usually were multi-generational. And when businesses like Max and Tom and I want thousands of other small businesses right around the world to be doing the same thing, by buying produce from small producers, we're able to reverse the trend of consolidation and we're able to make small family farming financially viable again. Because I'd love to see the family farm come back. I grew up on a family farm. But these days, it's just not possible. But if we as producers are able to choose our ingredients better, we can make it the financial family farm financially more viable. Uh, And the last thing is, you know, I've worked with hundreds of producers around the country and through the South Pacific. And those guys are absolutely amazing at making stuff, right? They're so passionate and they're really good at making stuff. But I tell you what, they are terrible at marketing, at sales, at getting their website looking good, getting their website working, the finance side and all the rest of the things that go into making a business. And so I want to educate all of those artists and producers around the world about how to do business better and using Max and Tom as a bit of a showcase. Gee, I don't, that's sort of in a nutshell, a little bit of my career. <laughs> Yeah, a little bit of your career. That was brilliant. So many experiences. Do you think that where you've ended up with your cheese therapy, do you think what happened with the bushfires and COVID, your upbringing, living on a farm, living in different regional areas and moving around, do you think that shaped your future? I think one of the things is perhaps more sort of the personality style of I just love to try new things. And I remember back as a kid where I'd watch Wide World of Sport. You know, Wide World of Sport in the 80s was fantastic because it was a six-hour show. In the middle of the day, I got to sit down and watch sport. And I'd see things like the Pomona King of the Mountain. It was a, Back then, it was this mountain race that just seemed ridiculous, running up a mountain, and then these guys just tumbled all the way back down. And it turned out that it's here on the Sunshine Coast. And I thought, you know, there's 13-year-old me, you know, clearly pre-internet because this is about, I don't know, 86 or something. I rode away to the, to the event organizer. I don't know how I, how I found details back in those days. I wouldn't know how to do it <laughs> today. Rode away, got an entry, and as a 13-year-old, I thought, I just want to see what it's like to race on this stupid-looking mountain. Because you know the Channel Nine helicopter was following them the entire way, and it was a feature of the show. 
And so for three years running, I was the youngest competitor in that. And there were only about 50 people there. And then I took up triathlon in the 80s as well. When triathlon, nobody knew it was a sport, really. A lot of the big triathlons like Noosa and Mooloolaba here on the Sunshine Coast, they only had about 200 people competing in them. It was pre-tri-bars days. It was almost old school and it was also a winter sport back in, um, <laughs> back in the day. So everybody having to wear Speedos out in the ocean in the middle of winter with a lot of people getting hypothermia. But I just love to keep trying new things and see what would happen. And I think that that has been just this thing of I don't want to be doing the same thing for the rest of my life. I want to keep trying new things. And one of my really close friends, she's got this saying of one life and she's uh, an unbelievable ultra runner. And she's constantly out doing just crazy stuff. Yeah, I, I thought I did crazy stuff. She does next level crazy stuff. But she keeps saying to me, hey, Penny, one life. And I just go, yeah, you know what? You're right. One life. You know, if you did the same thing for 20 years, 30 years, saved up for your retirement for when you're 60 or 70, you realize your best years are behind you. And, you know, I've done some really cool stuff in my time and I've done some things that I'm extremely proud of. And it's always been not because necessarily I'm good at it or I'm going to win a race or something like that. It's just I want to see what it's going to feel like. And I don't care what anybody thinks about it. I just want to see. You know, I swam the channel, the English channel in, what was that, 2018. I thought anybody who knows my swimming, I'm only good at 50 meters or 100 meters. So to go 34 kilometers was completely out of my zone. But I just thought, I wonder what it would feel like to do that. And then some of the other sort of craziest stuff that I've done beyond that, I just wanted to see what it feels like. You know, I did a a swim called an ice mile, right? An ice mile is a mile-long swim in water that's less than five degrees. So it was 3.9 degrees. You know when you put, you know, you reach down to the bottom of an esky and pull a can out, your hand instantly goes numb. That's how cold this water was. It was ridiculous. And 25 minutes in that was so hard, but it wasn't because I was trying to set a record or anything like that. I just thought, I wonder what that feels like. You know, setting up Max and Tom, I wonder what that's going to be like. I've got these skills here. I wonder what that's going to be like. Mm. All, the, all the things that I've learned over my life I think lead me on to my next part of the journey and the next adventure. Yeah. Now talk to me about the swimming. Where did the love, was there a love for swimming or is it just a love for trying new things? Okay. So I swam as a kid. Anybody who's into swimming, anybody who's tried to swim as an adult, there's two groups of people, people who swam as a kid and people who didn't. Now, if you swam as a kid, you find swimming easy as an adult. If you didn't swim as a kid, you've got the worst technique. You just find it really difficult. Mm. So I was lucky that as a kid, I did quite a bit of swimming, you know, swimming club, those kinds of things. And I took up swimming probably about 10 years ago as an adult because as a, I was a competitive cyclist and my back was just getting worse. It would take me probably five minutes to be able to stand up straight when I hopped off a bike each time. So I just thought, I can't sit around and get fat. I'm going to get into swimming because I used to do that. And the thought, honestly, of swimming up and down a pool, following that black line was, it gave me nightmares. But I just knew that I had to do it. And it was seriously the best thing for my back. I got into masters racing and just really enjoyed being active and having a lot of fun with it and meeting a lot of great people in swimming. But my swimming was 50 meters, 100 meters. I'm a sprinter. Like I, I love to go fast and I love to get to the end of the wall, you know, at the end of the race and then start puffing. Like that for me is the ideal kind of race. But 
I was watching a, a YouTube video on David Wallums. You know, David Wallums from Little Britain. Yep. The guy swam the English Channel. And I've always admired English Channel swimmers because for me in my mind, that was well beyond my capabilities. And growing up here in Australia in the 80s and the 90s, English Channel swimmers were on par with gods, basically. Des Renford, Susie Moroni, Shelley Taylor-Smith, all these just unbelievable people who dominated Australian media and doing feats which seemed to be at the time superhuman. And watching David Williams prepare for the English Channel, stepping out on stage in a dress and then next day he's in the pool or in the ocean doing a big swim, and then he swims the English Channel. I thought, you know, bugger me, if this guy can wear a dress and swim the English Channel, I'm sure I can swim the English Channel too. And so that was, it was basically some David Williams inspiration that uh, got me going. But I recognize that I don't know what on earth I needed to do. So I, see, I sought out a great coach, and my coach was a guy called Trent Grimsey who holds the record for the English Channel. And that was, that was the journey. It was meant to be an 18-month journey, but because I was pretty fit and a slot came up, my English Channel training turned out to only be about three months. Yeah, wow. Which was fantastic because I work in three-month chunks. Anything longer than three months, I don't have the stamina for. I just... I go hard for three months, make stuff work, and then I need to just rest. And so, yeah, it was, it was perfect. In that three months, I was doing a huge amount of Ks it, pretty much every, every weekend out in the ocean here on the Sunshine Coast doing six-hour swims. I had to put on 10 kilos in weight as well over this time, three months, which, is, which was brutal to be doing massive amounts of training plus putting on a heap of fat for the cold, but got it done. And the journey of the training and meeting all the people was the best part of swimming the English Channel. The actual feat of swimming the English Channel is like a victory lap. You, You get there, you stand on the shores of Dover in England, and you look out knowing that you've done all the hard stuff and all you have to do is swim for the next my swim was 11 hours, two minutes. Swim for the next 11 hours, and there you go. It's done. That's swimming the English Channel. It was great. Such a, for me, a personal accomplishment to know that I could do something like that. Go from swimming 50 meters fast to swimming 34 kilometers and swimming constantly for 11 hours. And I've always had this saying in my head, and it's, it's almost on, on repeat when times are tough, whether it's hard training session or stuff's hard in business, and it's, I didn't come this far, I only come this far. Mm. And it was a couple of days after swimming the English Channel, it was actually probably the same night after swimming the English Channel, from those kinds of things, I recover really fast. And... I was in France and I just, you know, two days later I was with my partner at the time and I said to her, you know what, it was actually too easy. I think I need something harder. I want to find something that's going to put me into the fetal position. (laughs) And she goes, yep, I was worried of that. (laughs) And so I just thought, you know, I wonder what it feels like if I did a double crossing. What if I got to France and then turned around and did, did a swim back? 68 kilometers, probably only about 23, 24 hours of swimming. What about that? And so I started preparing for that journey because what I wanted to feel was what does it feel like when you're completely and utterly in that fetal position mentally and physically? And it's, it's really difficult to do that in swimming because, you know, as you can expect, it can get a little bit dangerous. But I just thought, yeah, a double crossing, that sounds pretty cool. So I started out training for that. I thought, well, I need to do a whole heap of cold water work. So I did a lot of cold water acclimatization, bought a chest freezer, set it at one degree, and I'd sit in that for half an hour every second day and put myself into hypothermia. 
And then I thought, well, I've done all this cold work. Let's do an ice mile. So an ice mile, 1,600 metres or so at 3.9 degrees. And that was perhaps the one time in my life where I thought that I could actually die. I had quite a, quite a lot of people there in safety, but I had my guy next to me on a kayak, on a little blow-up kayak, a little Asian guy called Wyatt. And I kept looking up at him and just thought, if I lose consciousness at any moment, I think I'm stuffed. But it was, it was one of those things just, all right, I, I need to get to the end of this. I've got to get it done. Got that done and just thought, right, now I'm going to do an ultra. I want to sort of see what it feels like. So I did this race called Backyard Ultra where you do 6.7 kilometers every hour on the hour. And just thought, well, surely if I can keep going, because I can do 6.7 Ks. So I did that for about 14 hours and I got to the point where I was just yelling at my legs because I just wouldn't run. And that was, that was fantastic because I went from ice mile the month before to running 87 kilometers the next month. And anybody who saw my legs, you'll recognize that I probably run like a wombat. And I just thought, right, now I've done an ice mile. I've done this ultra. I'm doing all this cold water work. I'm getting a little bit tired of this double cross, crossing training, but I'm going to do it. And anyone who knows me knows that when I go quiet for a period of time is when I'm really thinking about something. And I was quiet for about two weeks because I had something ticking over in my mind constantly. And it was this project that I just thought, can I make this thing happen? This thing really excites me. I wake up every morning for the last two weeks. I'm genuinely excited about this thing. And this thing was is it possible to swim the English Channel in winter? And being an engineer and loving data, I found the daily data for the previous 11 years. So I did some statistical analysis to determine that at the start of December, the temperature is going to be 12 and a half degrees. And I thought, you know what? 12 and a half degrees, I've seen a couple of my friends swim the North Channel. Ireland to Scotland in 13 degrees and it's 34 Ks, same as the English Channel. And I've done a lot more cold water work than them. I'm faster than them. And so I just thought there's a possibility that a human could swim the English Channel in the English winter. And so I just thought I need to be that person to see if it's, if it's at all possible. The previous record for the latest swim was the start of November. So I was looking at the start of December. And I left Australia on the 1st of December and flew into the UK. And I landed in the UK. The water temp was 12 and a half degrees, spot on what I predicted, except I landed in the middle of a cold snap. And over the next three days, between the 1st and the 4th when I swam, the temperature dropped down to 10 degrees in the English Channel. It was my only window, though, to swim because the wind forecast for the next two or three weeks was blown out to about 100 k's an hour. And it's really difficult to swim in anything north of about 20 k's an hour in the English Channel. And myself and my team just thought, you know, let's just give it a go. Who knows what's going to happen? Nobody else has gone before me. And let's see what happens because there is seriously no precedent. And I had a medic on board. I had probably five safety people on board. We'd organized the French Coast Guard, the English Coast Guard. We had clearances everywhere. And so on the 4th of December, we motored to a beach called Samphire Ho, just south of, south of Dover. And at 4 a.m., I swam off the boat to shore because you have to start from shore. And I stood there in the darkness with nothing more than a spotlight on me from the boat two or 300 meters away in the freezing cold. The air temp was 10 degrees. The water was, uh, the air was six. The water was 10. It was so much warmer in the, in the water. And I just remember how nice it felt to jump in the water after standing in the cold air for getting prepped with my, with my grease all over the body. 
And I stood there at 4 a.m. in complete winter darkness in a place where most people do do not want to be in just nothing more than a pair of Speedos, goggles, and a swim cap, looking out and taking that next step into the English Channel, into the freezing water, and just thinking how excited I was. And I wasn't nervous. I was excited because not one person had ever taken that next step. And it didn't matter what happened from there because I was that first person. And it often takes that first person to make others think, oh, maybe there's something in that. You know, just being able to, to go out and swim and not feel nervous because there really was no pressure on me. You know, if I was to do it again, there'd be a huge amount of pressure because the expectation is to finish it. And for, you know, if someone else goes out to decide to swim the English Channel in winter as well, there's a lot of pressure on them because they're not the first person to take that step, but no person has taken that final step um, when they reach France. So here I was swimming the English Channel in darkness and it didn't get light till about 7am or so. The water was just extremely choppy. It was like a washing machine. There was no consistency to the waves. Swimming in the dark with next to a boat that was rocking, throwing waves into my face, a spotlight shining down into my eyes. So I was pretty much blind for, for those first three hours, taking on a heap of water. I really did not have anything going for me. And as I was swimming, there was this glow coming up in the north, the north of France. And I just thought, what on earth is that? You know, what's this glow? And this glow was there for about 20 minutes. And, and I just thought that there was what was going through my mind. This is at about three hour mark, the three hour 20 mark. You know, there's a nuclear reaction in France. You know, why is there this massive glow? Because I was expecting the sun to, to rise in the south, but here was this thing way up in the north. And then all of a sudden the sun popped up and I recognized that, oh shit, that's early stages of hypothermia starting to creep in. And then I just thought, you know what, I've got kids at home and I could push out to six or seven hours, but I still wasn't going to make it. On that day, that was going to be at least a 12-hour swim. And I just thought, you know what? Nobody's come this far. Nobody's gone further than, further than a step in the English Channel. And so I just decided I'm going to pull the pin. Hopped out and <laughs> shit, I was just bitterly disappointed with myself. You know, just, you know, everything that I was just saying, how, you know, excited and proud and priest and blah, blah, blah. You know, you still feel really crap that you gave up. And I was really disappointed in myself. And I remember going back to my hotel in Folkestone and just sitting there in my room, just with my hoodie on, just, you know, still cold to the bone, just going, that was crap. I'm disappointed. Just feeling just, yeah, really average. And then over the next 24 hours, I received probably a thousand messages from people around the world, just how inspired they were. And there are all these people around the world sharing photos of them hopping into a cold lake and them going for a swim. And I had people drawing me cartoons of me in the English channel. And it was at that moment where I was just going, that was not a failure at all. That is probably the best thing. That was definitely the best thing that I've probably done in my life at that stage. And wow, what a privilege it is to be the first person in the world to do something, to step out and take that step. Yeah, look, you know, looking back and taking that step is a lot of you know, the same things that I've done throughout my career, you know, whether it's selling cheese on the internet or medical devices and all these different things. I've always gone out to do something different and I've always been the first to go and do something and, and I'm not afraid of doing that. Yeah, you get beat up and you get battered and you have so many doubts in your mind about why am I doing this and why should I continue and life is hard and blah, blah, blah. But then you have these moments of a thousand messages flooding in where 
you sit there and you read through every single one of them and you respond to every one and the emotion that it fills your body with and the tingles that you get. The little letters that I used to get from little old ladies, how I changed their lives with my, med- my medical devices, all these things that all the hard stuff disappears, all the horrible things, they disappear and you're left with these moments which really make you truly proud about who you are and what you've done and make you want to go on and be that modern day adventurer even more. Mm-hmm. Through that all then, what do you think some of the key things you learned about yourself? I think one of the greatest things is that I always consider myself a creative. I can't play an instrument. I can't even draw a stick man, but I'm creative in the way that I look things, look at things. I draw on all the experiences that I've had in the past and I just go, there's a problem that I want to solve. How am I going to solve that? And because quite often I am not from the industry and trying to solve a problem that's in a, an industry, I'm able to draw on all of those experiences that I've had in my past and bring stuff together. And the people that I know and the networks that I have, being able to draw on all of that and just go, okay, here's what I want to do. How are we going to do it? Here's the plan and let's just make it happen. And that creativity of problem solving is fantastic. And I'm never afraid to go out and just try those things. I don't care what people say about me. I will always keep going out to do something new, to try something new. Like my friend says, one life. And it's true. You only have one life and you need to make the most of it. Go out and solve problems and change the world and make your life better for yourselves, but also make your life better, make other people's lives better as well. You know, some of the other things that I've learned through this time is really cherishing the small moments. As a dad, I love being a dad. Being a dad is the greatest gift in the world. Being able to share my cheese business, Max and Tom, with the real life Max and Tom and being able to see them be influenced by it and them wanting to start you know, their own businesses as kids kidpreneurs or whatever the the fancy term is and being able to influence people by demonstration and making people recognize that what's the worst that can happen go out and give something a go and if it doesn't kill you that's a good thing you learn so much when you actually give stuff a go you don't learn anything from sitting by and watching everyone else do it yeah, you've got to give it a crack. Yeah, you sure do. You sure do. You, if you don't give it a crack, you're just going to sit by idly. You're going to. You're just not going to feel fulfilled. Yeah, Sam, you're obviously moving into you know, and you've got a passion for small businesses and artisan industries. So, tell me, what advice and how are you working with businesses and How are you getting them to shift their thinking around how to grow their brand and how to grow their product? Yeah, good question, Steve. One of the things that I've always recognized is that when you truly understand what your core values are, then you're able to shape whatever it is that you want. And for any business and any business founder, particularly the entrepreneur, When you understand what your core values are, that will then drive everything that your business has. And so I've always tried to make small business owners recognize what their core values are. Mm. And quite often they'll go out and pull out the same ones as, you know, maybe Apple or, you know, the big companies because that Google core values. What, What should my core values be? But the core values really are those things that piss you off or really excite you. If they piss you off, it's because, you know, those things that make your blood boil when someone does something in particular or a business or a person acts in a particular way, that opposite is going to be one of your core values. And those things that really drive you 
get you up in the morning. For example, me as a dad, being able to teach my kids, but also teach other business founders around the country and around the world. That's super exciting for me. It's part of my core values. And so being able to work with businesses around the world to identify what their actual and true core values are is the basic building blocks of every single business because using those core values will then allow them to make better decisions throughout the entire business. You know, whether that's ingredient selection, partner selection, um, the way that they market, the way that they sell, the way that they speak to customers, all these kinds of things all come back to a solid set of core values that really drive the personality of that business. And from there, once, once they know really what their core values are as a person and also a business, then being able to take that through right through their marketing and give them those sustainable competitive advantages over and above what the big boys have that they compete against. So if we look at small artisan producers, for example, their passion and their why for what they do is the reason why customers are loyal to them as opposed to, say, an Arnott's if we're talking about the cracker space or something like that. If you can really demonstrate your core values and share your core values, you'll attract people with similar core values to you and they'll never leave you if you stay true to those core values for eternity. And making these small producers recognize that will really lead them to success. It will really give them that differentiation to everybody else in the marketplace because their values and their why is going to be very different to everybody else. <laughs> because I tell you what, I want to see small business succeed with the internet and the ability to share content so easily. We've got a great opportunity as small business owners to be able to differentiate ourselves. And if, if I'm selling cheese, the way that Max and Tom is, is very different to a foreign-owned cheese and a big multinational. And I'm different to other small producers as well because I've got a different set of core values. Because of those different set of core values, I attract a certain type of customer, whereas you know, maybe another small producer like Nimbin Valley or Grandview down in Tasmania, they've got a different clientele to me because we attract different customers. And yeah, we, we're all small producers and we all make small batch handmade cheese, but we don't necessarily cross over and we're differentiated. Yeah, so that's really a big part of what I'm trying to do, educate small businesses about how they can gain that competitive advantage in their marketplace and gain a loyalty that they've never had. Tell me about Max and Tom. Where do you make your cheese? Yep. So I make it on the Gold Coast. Got a great cheese maker. He's like to have a a great cheese maker is is like being born again, finding God. <laughs> it's he's <laughs> this guy Paul is a sensational. He makes some great stuff exactly how I want it, consistent because we're drawing from small dairies. The milk changes, so we get seasonality in the cheese and being able to, to tell customers about how the cheese changes. You know, We might be going into spring milks or autumn milks or being able to see the texture change. Yeah, like it's, it's exciting to be able to have a product that's it's effectively still alive. It's still fermenting. It's still growing molds. It's changing flavors as it ages. The experience that you have today is different to the experience that you might have in two weeks' time with the same cheese. The way that what you're eating today with the cheese or what you're drinking it with is going to pair differently. Cheese is just this amazing thing. It's also the only thing, I believe, the only food that brings people truly together. Mm. When you think about it, a cheese board is always in the center of people. People lean in to a cheese board. People come that little bit closer. If you're five years or if you're 95 years, if you're a, you know, a top CEO or warehouse worker, you can all share an experience. Mm. And luckily, there's not a lot of you know, cheese wankers in this world like there are wine wankers. 
And so everybody just gets to enjoy an experience. You know, if it's wine, wine is always on the outer of the circle. It's on the table next to you. And not everybody's drinking wine or beer or whatever. Certainly not Tom, my 11-year-old. Cheese, though, you can still share an experience. And even the vegans out there, there's some awesome vegan cheeses that are being produced that that are providing flavors that are very similar because they're using the same molds just with, you know, usually cashew milk or something like that. And still, everybody can participate. Cheese, like cheese is life, Steve. <laughs> yep. You got a big cheese fan here. Yeah. Wonderful. This is going to be, you're probably going to laugh at this question, but what's your favorite cheese? Out of the Max and Tom range? Well, favorite cheese, you can share your Max and Tom range, which people can get now. But can you think back to a cheese that you've had that you've just gone? That is the best. There is one cheese which comes from the Pyrenees called Osorati. It's made with a sheep's milk. Yep. You can get it anywhere in the world. The reason I love it is because you can just nibble on it all day, every day. It's For me, Osorati is that moment where I sit down in quiet or with someone and we share a moment and yeah, just, you know, when you have experiences and that was a common thing through some of these experiences and in my mind, that is my favorite cheese. And cheese aficionados out there will say, oh no, it's Roquefort or no, it's, you know, blah, 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 whatever. Your favorite cheese is not necessarily the greatest tasting cheese and it's not necessarily the greatest tasting wine or fish or whatever it is. It's the feeling that it gives you when you think about it and you know, that moment that it, that it can provide. And so Osorati, I'd still go out and buy it, but when I go out and buy it, it's for that moment where I want to just sit in com- contemplation or I want to sit quietly with someone and just have a nice, quiet time and, and truly connect because that's what Osorati has done for me in the past. I don't want to spoil that by just having that as a a party cheese or an everyday cheese or something like that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I thought that question was going to be a bit like which which one of your sons do you like more from from your history with cheese? So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, everyone has a favorite kid, and I'm not going to tell Max or Tom which one it is. <laughs> it it all depends on the day, really. <laughs> How are you feeling? What have they done? Completely, completely. And I think it's interesting when you talk about your favorite cheese, it's like wine. When we've been overseas and traveled, and sometimes you'll pick up, you'll have a glass of wine, you'll be in a beautiful environment, amazing place, you know, in Italy or France or somewhere like that. And then you bring a bottle home and you have it at home and it doesn't taste the same. Yep, exactly. Uh, That's exactly right. And being able to be in that moment, to enjoy the moment, the moment, mm. and particularly food and drink, you're using all of your senses. It's not just your taste and your smell. It's you've got emotion going into it. You've got all the surrounds. You've got the people that you're with, or the people that you're not with. Mm. You've got all of these things that make up the flavor of that cheese. And even just the enthusiasm of the people around you will change the flavor of what you're tasting. Mm. You know, you can taste something reasonably bland, but if everyone around you is just having a great time, you're going to associate what normally would be a bland product with something that's quite exciting. That's how food is to me. Obviously, I'm a, I'm a big foodie, but... I guess more of a perhaps a situational foodie. Mm. I love food where I get to share it with other people. I get to be with people that I really love their company. Yeah, because of that, there's always so much enjoyment. And then you can also attach memories to different types of food. Yeah, yeah. Now, Sam, when you did the TEDx talk, you were talking about people supporting small producers and small businesses. 
What are some recommendations that you can give to those listening in regards to how can we support and and what are some of the ways that we can support the the smaller producers? Because for me, I get disappointed that you got the big shopping big shopping centers and the big supermarkets, but what they're paying the small producers and what they're making is chalk and cheese. Yeah. Pardon the pun, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, firstly, let me just say doing a TEDx talk is such an honor and a privilege. It's not something that you apply for. They just randomly come out of the blue and ask you if you'd like to consider doing a TEDx talk. And secondly, it is so much harder doing a TEDx talk than what it is to swim the English Channel. Just putting it out there, it is bloody difficult. A TEDx talk, for people who aren't familiar with the process, it takes months and months to prepare for it. We had to have our script learned a month out from the event word for word and demonstrate that we had learned it word for word. And the reason for that is because every script goes to the US for fact checking. And so that when you're then up on stage, you have to do it word for word because everything's been fact checked. And bugger me, trying to learn, I think mine was... 11 minutes, 12 minutes, something like that was really, really difficult. And also being up on stage, knowing you're in front of a few hundred people, you've got all the nerves happening. Wow, God, it was hard. Put me in the English channel any day. But, you know, it's one of those things. I've done a TEDx talk once and now I reckon I can do it again. So, Yeah, so back to your original question about how can you help artists and producers. Look, it's pretty simple. All you have to do is buy direct. Now, you can buy direct through going straight to their website. And most producers these days have a website. I certainly know that quite a few don't or they're pretty poor. And that's what I'm trying to educate them about how to improve things so that they can sell direct. A lot of particularly farmers will have roadside stores, you know, where you put some few bucks in for the produce. You can visit farmers markets. So for example, I'm at Noosa Farmers Market every Sunday and along with probably about sort of 30, 40 other producers. And it's a great way for people to buy direct from the producer and also for us as producers to be part of a community. And farmers markets are such an integral part of particularly regional communities, but also each of the capital cities have some great farmers markets wherever you are in the world. You know, a lot of places will have cellar doors or they've got a shop where you can go and buy direct from them. There's, there's a few ways where you can, but the easiest way, seriously, just jump online. If you're after, I don't know, cheese, if you're after olives, if you're after spices, you know, what have you, it's out there. And firstly, but also find out if they are... For example, we're here in Australia. Are they Australian-owned? Or if, if you live in Ecuador, are they Ecuadorian? So, you know, try and always buy as local as you can mm. and buy direct. That, that was the, really the big thing that I tried to take away and give people from my TED Talk, my TEDx Talk, was buy direct because it has such a massive effect on regional communities Trade is so much better than aid. I look at the Pacific Islands, for example, and I'm wanting to do some work with some Pacific Island businesses at the moment because there's a lot of aid, foreign aid, that goes into the, into the Pacific Islands. But if we can develop greater frameworks for entrepreneurship and being able to manage logistics a lot better to major centers like through Asia, Singapore, Hong Kong, Australia and the US and being able to develop them as businesses a lot better, then we're going to have a lot more money going into those, into those places because I'm of the belief that trade is about five times better than aid. That money just circulates through economies probably about five times better than what aid does. Aid goes in and it gets spent. It gets wasted. So, yeah. If we can teach small business to do business better, we're going to have such a profound effect on regional communities and we're going to keep regional communities around the world vibrant and alive and 
being able to have families and also when their kids are of age to move away, they want to stay because there's opportunities for them. You know, they can run a successful e-commerce business from anywhere now and they can harness the produce that's been grown and produced in their local areas and then being able to ship that around the country. So, yeah, buy direct. That's all people have to do. Buy direct from an artisan producer because, holy hell, that has such a massive upstream effect into the regional communities. Great advice. And that was something that I definitely took away from your TEDx talk. So thank you very much for sharing that. I wanted to ask you, Sam, what does success mean to you and how has that changed through your life? Mm. What does success mean to me? I don't feel like I've found success yet. However, I've found many moments of fulfillment and perhaps it's fulfillment that is success for me. Seeing my kids want to start, you know, clothing labels, being able to have a successful, you know, a few successful businesses. Yeah, and I've had some some great failures as well that I've certainly learned from, learned probably, you know, sometimes too much from. But all of those those ups and downs are so fulfilling. They give you a fulfilled life. You know, not everything can be roses. Everything's obviously a roller coaster, and every, if everything was great, then life's just boring. We need to have those those dips to be able to appreciate the highs. And I think because I always push hard in whatever I do, and I try new things, I'm always having big dips, but also big highs. And when those highs come. My God, I just really appreciate them and savor the moment. I'm just so grateful for what that moment is, but also the lessons that I've learned, particularly through those dips. And so success for me perhaps is more being fulfilled and having these buckets that I'm filling along my life and along my journey and being able to work with others to fill their buckets as well and just being able to explore, have adventure, being able to take that next step into the English channel kind of thing when no man has been before, (laughs) having those moments because as a modern-day adventurer, there is nothing more rewarding and nothing more fulfilling to me. Yep. Throughout your life, Who's been your greatest teacher? My greatest teacher? I think that, gee, that's that's a really tough question, something that I've never pondered before in my life. I learn a lot from a lot of people. There are some people who are more influential than others. I think because of a lot of the things that I've tried, I've had to become my own teacher and I ha- I've always had to recognize my own failings and where things have gone wrong and where things have gone right and how do I learn from that. Whereas I see other people as guiding me and mm. taking on all the advice that I've received over the years, you know, whether you agree with it or not, if it's free advice, it's free advice and just take it or leave it. But, you know, there's some people who when you recognize their characteristics, you learn a lot from them. And one of them is a great mate of mine who I actually launched. He was a big inspiration for cheese therapy, a guy called Peter Russell Clark. Anybody over the age of about, I don't know, 45 in Australia can sing the theme tune of his show, Come and Get It. This guy was probably Australia's first celebrity chef back in the 80s. And for about the last 15 years, Pete and I have spoken at least once a month. Every Christmas day, he's called me. Every day on my birthday, he calls up. He and his wife sing me happy birthday. He's always been in touch and he's always been there. And he's always just been this consistent force. And what I've recognized about Pete, for example, is the power of networks and keeping in touch and 
not being judgmental, but always being there if you need him. And it's just been such a wonderful friendship over over 15 years. And it's people like him where I've learnt so much without being taught something that was obvious. It was just that mm. last Christmas I was expecting his call on Christmas Day because I know he was going to call and I was excited about it. And sure enough, Pete calls, Pete and his wife Jan call, and it's just a beautiful moment. And because of that, he'll always be a dear friend. And it's those kinds of people who just teach you so much, but they're not intentionally trying to teach you. And I'm of the belief that you attract certain people, you, you put the vibe out into the world that you want and you're going to attract people in. You know, for example, Steve, just the privilege of being asked to share my story on your podcast, it's, you know, it's a real honor being able to do that. But, but through meeting you, I've now listened to some of your previous guests and just being able to learn from their their experiences and their stories and you're that person who's drawn that out so yeah there's all these people throughout my life where I have learned so much without at the time recognizing that I was being taught <laughs> mm, yeah yeah Sam if you could go back and talk to your teenage self what advice would you give him oh man um Oh, Jesus. Wow. He, he was, see, my teenage self, look, he was probably having too much fun down in Canberra at the time to listen to me. <laughs> but if he was to listen, uh, I think I would have told him back then, you've only got one life and just go and live it. Hmm. Life's a garden, dig it. Yep. Yeah, I love that. Now, Sam, for those that want to reach out and keep in touch with you or connect with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, uh, jump onto my website, sampenny.com or hit me up on LinkedIn. I love a good LinkedIn connection and conversation. And look, seriously, if there's anything I can help you with, if you want to chat, catch up for a coffee or a beer, more than happy to. There's so much value in just meeting people and don't be afraid. I am honestly an introvert, not a big fan of big crowds, uh, <laughs> but, but happy to catch up with, with a group and, or individually and just have a coffee, have a beer or just a phone call or a Zoom. Yeah, LinkedIn, hit me. Awesome. Well, Sam, I'm grateful for your time today, sharing your story, sharing your experiences and your reflections, also your your passion for small business and for cheese, for farmers, and, and obviously that advice of buy direct. It's so easy to do now in the technological age. So thank you for that. I look forward to connecting with you again in the future. Steve, it's a real privilege to be part of it. Thank you very much. No problem at all. Thanks for tuning into today's episode. It's been great to have you along for the ride. Remember to hit subscribe and share this episode with a friend, maybe just one person you think could benefit from what was just shared. Also, if you haven't connected with me yet, you can find me on Instagram at the Steve Hodgson and also share underscore underscore podcast. I'll catch you on the next episode.